From the Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 11, beginning to read at verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. We continue uh, this morning our series in the nine fruits of the Spirit from uh, Paul's words to the Galatians in chapter 5. And this morning we come to the fruit uh, which we translate gentleness. But I want to start with a question. And the question is this. Would you call yourself a rhinoceros or would you call yourself a hedgehog? Philippa and I have been doing the parenting course uh, at the moment, and if you've done the parenting course or indeed the marriage course that I spoke about a little bit earlier, you will know there's a section in those two courses where uh, you think about how you deal with criticism, how you deal with conflict, uh, whether that's with your spouse, whether that's with your children, whether that's just generally in the office or wherever it might be. And they make the point that people tend to respond in one of two ways. Not always the case, but people tend to respond in one of two ways, either Uh, When faced with criticism, or when faced with hostility, faced with anger, people can respond in kind. That is to say, they can can go on the attack, they can go on the offensive, they can retaliate, they can charge into the confrontation like a rhinoceros. But there's another group of people who, when faced with criticism, when faced with anger, whatever it might be, uh, go on the defensive, uh, who tend to withdraw, who tend to become sort of... um, silent, they clam up and they become prickly like the hedgehog. Uh, Do we respond to criticism like the rhinoceros or like the hedgehog? And the point is, of course, that neither is particularly helpful uh, when resolving an issue in a relationship, whatever that relationship might be, because, of course, those who attack like the rhinoceros, well, that, of course, is in danger of breaking the relationship. That's in danger of wrecking the relationship. But those who withdraw and become defensive and prickly, well, the danger there, of course, is that nothing changes in the relationship. The relationship doesn't get fixed. It just gets buried where it sort of simmers away and probably bursts forth later on in a much bigger crisis. Now, being a rhinoceros is not great. Being a hedgehog is not great. What is needed is the ability in those situations to respond unlike the hedgehog, but to respond with restraint, unlike the rhinoceros. The ability to perhaps challenge what's being said, perhaps challenge an issue, but to do so with control, with with measured words. What is needed in a word is gentleness. Because that sense of response but with restraint challenge but with control, that sense of power but controlled and measured is an excellent definition of the Greek word prautes, 
which is what we have translated gentleness in Galatians 5 and is what Jesus uses of himself in Matthew 11. Several different Greek words are, used, are, are translated gentleness. But in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, it is this Greek word prautes. And in Matthew 11, when Jesus speaks of himself being gentle, it is this Greek word prautes. One commentator says this, gentleness is an, at- an attempt to translate the almost untranslatable word prautes. It's a great Greek word which has no precise English equivalent. That's true. It's a very rich word in ancient, uh, in ancient Greek. They used the word, in fact, to describe strong animals that had been tamed. They used it of the watchdog and the warhorse. Not, not weak animals and, and not made weak by their taming. Still strong, but tamed in such a way that their strength could now be channeled, controlled, and therefore put to a good use. Proutes. So biblical gentleness, we need to get this straight away, is not timidity. It's not spinelessness. It's not weakness in that sense. It's not the absence of power and strength. Rather, it is power and strength rightly channeled, rightly controlled, tamed, as we'll see, by the Holy Spirit, and therefore able to be put to good use. Again, it was, it was a term closely connected to humility. So gentleness is not haughty and it's not harsh. It is always kind and considerate. It's not self-assertive. Rather, it is, in the right sense, self-forgetful. And we'll come back to that. It doesn't insist on its rights. It doesn't seek revenge. It is always conciliatory. It was used quite often of people who were a calming influence, particularly on the angry. It was always restrained. It accommodated itself to other people's weakness. Proutes, gentleness. And if that's the word, to some extent, defined, where do we see it displayed? Well, of course, we see it in the true man, Jesus Christ, Matthew 11. We see gentleness perfectly displayed in the person of Jesus. Come to me, he says, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, here's the word, gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. All the way through Jesus' ministry, as you read the Gospels, what strikes you is his gentleness in this sense, in his interactions with everyone he meets, no matter who they are and no matter what their response to him is, be it hostility, be it the religious leaders, be it the poor, be it the broken. Whatever it is, he always demonstrates this gentleness. He never blows up in unmeasured anger. He never clams up and becomes prickly in defensiveness. When he's slighted, there's no malice in his response. He responds, but not maliciously. When he's reproached, there's no resentment. He never charges at his critics and his haters like a rhinoceros, but neither does he withdraw and not challenge what they're saying and become sort of prickly. No, he, he bears all with patience, and then he always moved towards the person with words that are kind, conciliatory, words designed, in other words, to win the person whom he is speaking to. 
be they a friend, be they a foe. In fact, a few verses later on, you can flick your eyes to Matthew 12, uh, the passage from Isaiah is quoted about the Lord Jesus who fulfills uh, this passage about being God's chosen servant. And you'll see in verse 20 this uh, This prophecy of Isaiah being applied to the Lord Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Some of my favorite words about the Lord Jesus, they are delightful, are they not? In other words, when he meets people who are fragile and are either showing that in aggression, as people often do who are fragile, or are are, are obviously timid and fragile and bruised, if they're bruised, if their faith is smoldering like a wick, He never responds in such a way to break that reed or snuff out that faltering faith. He always responds in a way that seeks to make whole and to fan into flame whatever it is that he finds. Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher of yesteryear, uh, preaching on this uh, gentleness, said this, Such was Jesus' gentleness that when he might have shaken the earth and rocked the thrones of tyrants, he put forth no such physical power, but still stood with melting heart and tearful eyes, inviting sinners to come to him. He used no lash but his love, no weapon of war but his grace. He was gentle. If that's what gentleness is, I want to ask the question, why is it worth having? Why is it worth having? Actually, as you go through and look for this word to see how the New Testament uses it, it comes up, I found, in, in, in five specific ways. Why is it worth having? It's worth having, the New Testament says, or the Bible says, because the gentle are best equipped to first receive from God. The opening chapter of James says this, humbly, proutes, accept the word planted in you. Humbly, or we might say gently, accept the word planted in you. Why? Well, because a gentle spirit is inherently teachable. If you think about it, friends, to be teachable, you need to be gentle in that sense, don't you? You need to be humble. If someone is going to teach you something, particularly where it might tread on your toes, particularly where it might challenge you, particularly where it's deeply personal, if you're going to in any way hear that with an open ear and an open heart... You need to have something of humility about you, do you not? You need to be able to hear truths without responding in resentment and anger or clamming up. That's gentleness. That's proudness. Those who are gentle are best equipped to hear truth and supremely hear God's truth. Secondly, those who are gentle are best equipped to respond to the angry. Proverbs 15.1. Do you remember this? A gentle, proudness answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. How true. We'll all know that to be true. The gentle do not respond to anger with anger. Because the gentle have the ability to bear a slight or a reproach or a false accusation or whatever it is the angry person is throwing at you without the need to respond in kind, without the need to retaliate, without the need to be the rhinoceros and charge straight into confrontation. Anger attacks, fear retreats, gentleness responds, but it does so with humility. And nothing is better suited to disarm anger than humility. Thirdly, the gentle are best equipped to rebuke those in error. 
uh, Paul in 2 Timothy says this uh, to church leaders. He says, opponents must be gently instructed. Gentleness is one of the prime characteristics of Christian leaders. If, if, if any of you are in any sort of leadership role in the church, hear this. Christian leaders must be gentle. You know, like Jesus, neither breaking bruised reeds in front of us or snuffing out smoldering wicks, not charging into confrontation to prove our point or to win an argument or whatever it might be, but not being silent and letting anything go. No, responding, challenging where it's necessary, but with restraint, in a kind way, always in a conciliatory way, always seeking to win the person, not break them. Christian leaders need to be gentle. Fourthly, in Galatians 6, the gentle are best equipped to relate to those who have been caught up in a sin. Paul says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who uh, live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Because gentle people are not haughty, they are not harsh. They are humble. They know that they are equally broken as the person they're talking to, and therefore they are able to empathize and sympathize and be patient. And fifthly, interestingly, uh, the New Testament says that those who are gentle are best equipped to reply to those who are seeking. That's 1 Peter 3. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness, proutes. Not rushing into a confrontation, not desperate to win the argument, even if it means crushing our opponent in front of us, but seeing that person as a human person made in the image of God and responding in a loving, gentle, kind, considerate way. Not going defensive and prickly and not saying anything about our faith, but doing so in a measured, controlled, loving way. William Barclay, a great uh, Christian of yesteryear, said this, Gentleness, then, is that quality by which we treat all people with perfect courtesy. We can rebuke, but without rancor. We can argue, but without intolerance. We can face the truth, but without resentment. We can be angry, but without sin. We can be gentle, yet not weak. It's a beautiful fruit, isn't it? It's a beautiful fruit. Imagine as we start to grow that fruit, how that will manifest itself in healthy relationships amongst us here as a church family, but also for us as a church family as we relate to the community and the outside world around us. We need, the Bible says, if we're going to do that well, to be gentle, to have this fruit. So that leads us to the million-dollar question. What is it? Why is it worth having? Finally, how do we get it? How do we cultivate this fruit of the Spirit? Well, it's a fruit of the Spirit, first. Therefore, it is grown by the Spirit. It is a product of the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us. And what is the principal ministry and work of Him who indwells us? Well, it is, of course, to grow us in the image of of the Lord Jesus Christ, to make us increasingly like him. Now, how does he do that? Are we passive in that? Does he just sort of zap us in that? To which the Bible says, no, we're not passive in that. We have to keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, we have to identify what he's up to and get involved in that as we apply 
those life-changing words of Jesus to our lives and allow them in the power of the Spirit to increasingly change us and make us like Jesus. And I want to show us briefly how the gospel gives us a new perception of ourselves and other people in such a way that it grows gentleness in us. An American pastor who I often quote, and I make no apology for that because I um, like him very much and I find him very helpful, is a man called Tim Keller. And he has written a wonderful little booklet, tiny little booklet, which I commend to you, called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It will cost you a pound or two, and I, I recommend it. And in that book, he says this. He says, Christianity is the only religion, and it's the only system of thought in which you get the verdict before the performance. Isn't that lovely? You get the verdict before the performance. In other words, when you turn to Christ, you get God's final day verdict on you now. You are forgiven. You are justified. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. And then the performance, by which he means your life, flows out of that verdict. In religion, it's the other way around. You try very hard to live for God. You try to be good. You try to do X. You try to do Y. You try to do Z. If I can get the performance good enough, maybe I'll pass and I'll get the verdict on that final day of judgment. No, no, no. That leads to despair. That is not the way of Christianity. You get the verdict now. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. And that leads to a truly changed heart and then to a truly changed life. Now, how does that help us grow gentleness? Like this. As we allow the Spirit to take those truths of the gospel, that we are forgiven, that we are justified, that we are God's beloved sons and daughters in whom he is well pleased, as we allow the Spirit to impress those truths deeply into our hearts so that we don't just know them to be true up here, but we know them to be true in here, we will be freed to respond, not like the rhinoceros, not like the hedgehog, but in gentleness. Do we tend to get angry, or do we tend to get defensive in the face of criticism? You see, the problem is this. Both of those responses come from the same heart. They both come from the heart that is comparing itself to what other people think. And either we think, I'm being criticized, this person is threatening my my status, this person is threatening my identity, I'm going to go on the attack, how dare you, or we think, I'm being criticized, I'm being, my identity is being threatened, my status is being threatened, I'm going to cower and clam up and go on the defensive. Actually, they both come from the same heart. But as we allow the Spirit to say, actually, what this person thinks of you is not ultimately important, because the verdict is in, you are justified, you are forgiven, God has given you a new identity, a new status, a new significance. You are his beloved son, his beloved daughter, and nothing that this person is saying, whatever it is, can, can touch that, can damage that. You are freed. Do you see? You're freed to respond, but not in anger and not in defensiveness, but in a measured way. Because you're not under threat. One Christian counselor put it like this. As you put to death the things that you want from the angry person, in other words, like honor and respect and significance, as you put them to death, because actually you don't need them in that person, you're getting them from God, 
you will notice, perhaps for the first time, a hint of freedom, even boldness. When you have nothing to lose, you can perform some unusual feats of strength. Think about it. The angry person is screaming about how you're such an idiot. And if you aren't as concerned with pleasing people or bolstering your own reputation, you can respond with something other than anger or fear. Do you see? Because ultimately, their opinion doesn't matter. You're not caught up in what they think of you. So it's not when they call you an idiot, oh, how dare you? How dare you say I'm an idiot? I'm going to go on the offensive. Or, oh, perhaps I am an idiot. Perhaps that is true of me. And you, and you go on the defensive. No, you're not listening to them for the, for the verdict on you. you. You've got the verdict from your heavenly father. Do you see? And so you're able to respond in a new way, with gentleness. You're able to respond, you know, well, obviously I've upset you. You, you think I'm an idiot? Uh, let, let's, I'm happy to talk about this if you want to talk about this. Sh- sh- show me in what ways you think you know, I'm an idiot. Let's, let, let's talk about that. You know, challenge it, respond to it, but in a way that's kind and considerate and conciliatory. Because you're secure. Because it's God's opinion, not theirs, that matters. You can bear slights and derision and whatever it might be with gentleness, neither charging back like the rhino or running away like the hedgehog, but calmly moving towards that person with measured words that calm, that heal. Because you've been set free by the gospel. Because you hear those words above that encounter, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. And that frees you to respond in gentleness because you have the verdict from the one person whose opinion actually really matters, God's. Friends, the verdict is in. And the extent to which in the power of the Spirit we work those gospel truths into our hearts is the extent to which we'll live those gospel truths out in our relationships with each other and the outside world. The extent to which we work those gospel truths into our hearts is the extent to which we'll live them out in true gentleness. And God give us the grace so to do. Amen.